Go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 14 and then Revelation 21 verse 3. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word as we honor him and his word. John chapter 1 verse 14. These are the words of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Let's pray. Our Father and Sovereign Lord, since we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth, make us hunger for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. Through Christ Jesus, we pray. The bread of heaven. Amen. You can be seated. Today we're looking at the word dwelt in John 1.14. And I want to start by reminding us that Advent is a time for us to reflect upon the events of the first century, to try and place ourselves in the biblical narrative, to see what they saw, uh, to hear what they heard, and to feel what they felt. And this, this can be difficult to do in our day, which is why it is so important to know the redemptive historical context. The reason this is an indispensable reminder for us is because the entire purpose of Christmas is the establishment of Christ's mediatorial kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's precisely what Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 teaches us. The government, that is, the responsibility of upholding the universe and the righteousness, justice, and peace that his kingdom rule affords, this government would be upon the child's shoulders. It's a Christmas text for a reason. The triune God has always been king and lord of all, and yet there is a sense in which Jesus' arrival in Bethlehem was the establishment of a new type of rulership, one which brings men back into the fold as vicegerents and rulers under God. Now, I hasten to bring this up on the front end because those who were there during the events surrounding the birth of Christ were not thinking Gee, this is wonderful. He's here. Now I can die and just go to heaven. Uh, that's not what the, the Magi said. And Oh, great. This is, this is wonderful. Now I, I can just die and go to heaven. And that's the gospel, right? The gospel is I die and go to heaven. And that's what evangelicalism has been cursed with for many, many years. They weren't escapists looking for a way out. Not Zechariah, none of the, the, the stories that we see, none of them were thinking, this is a great way for us to just get out of here. Uh, truth be told, however, Israel was held captive in lonely exile. Uh, the glories of the temple had dissipated. David's son, promised to David himself, wasn't ruling. Uh, to make matters worse, the pagan Roman Empire was ruling the world with an iron fist. Questions abound. When would the rod of Jesse free God's people from Satan's tyranny? When would that happen? When would the day spring, that sun, S-U-N, of righteousness, rise and disperse the gloomy clouds of night? 
The entire mood during this time was somber, uh, uncertain, and despondent. And yet, there was still a lot of animosity. Trouble with Rome. Trouble that would eventually get them and their city destroyed a few generations, or a few years, decades down the road. The glory of Yahweh never returned to the temple. Temple worship wasn't happening the way it was supposed to. And Israel lie there naked in a ditch of despair and guilt and shame. And this is the context. Ruined sinners in need of a captivity-ending ransom. That's what they needed. They did not need a get-out-of-hell-free card. They did not need a zap-me-off-the-planet-so-I-don't-have-to-do-anything card. They needed a captivity-ending ransom. Real-life situation needs to be resolved. They were not escapists looking for a way out. They were exiles looking for restoration and renewal and peace on earth. Now, when we place ourselves there in that context, we retrieve the motivations necessary to pursue holiness and the kingdom of our Lord and Savior. That's why it's important to reflect upon these things, because you put yourself there and realize we need that deliverance too. We don't need to get a way out, right? Many people live like, I just want to die and go to heaven when they forget that heaven's coming here. So that's not, we don't, we want to go back and see what they saw so that we can do the same. Now, when we attempt to time travel, (laughs) that's the only time travel that's possible, by the way, we find that this too is our story. These are our people and God is always doing some great work. He's always doing some great work. It's usually hidden somewhere in a small town. Each year we are reminded that Jesus is truly Emmanuel. That is, he is God with us. And so what does it mean for God to be with us? Even further, how is God with us? What can we say about the word who became flesh in order to dwell among men? That's our focus today. Let's look at our text. John 1.14. Last week we talked about flesh. Jesus became flesh. The Word now has dwelt among us. Verse 14 there. He has dwelt among us. Note that phrase. The verb dwelt, eskinosin, it comes from the noun used for tent or tabernacle. Uh, John has made himself very clear. The Son of God was clothed in flesh, made to be truly human. Jesus has a body and a soul, which means that He also put on all the baggage of the human condition since Adam. That is, Jesus of Nazareth, fully God and fully man, took on frailty, knowing full well what it's like to be dejected and faced with despondency, temptation, emptiness, betrayal. But the reason God did this was so that we, his people, could become glorious, which we'll look at next week, Lord willing. Aligned with truth and filled with the peace of God. And what John explains is that Jesus settled and lived among us. He came to his own, verse 11 says. There's so many connections just in the first chapter there. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then and you go to back up to verse 11. He came to what was his own and those who were his own did not receive him. So Jesus took on flesh, never to take it off again, fixing a tabernacle here in the midst of infirm humanity. That's what that word means. So when we, we already talked about the humanity of Jesus. 
what it means for, for God to become flesh. But what manner of life did he assume? He was a Jew, that is clear. And so he lived like a Jew, or rather, he lived as a descendant of Judah, the way all covenant members were supposed to live. It's not enough for us to say, well, he was a Jewish man. He was the Jewish man. He was what Jewish men were supposed to do. Jesus kept company with the people of the first century, walking where they walked, sitting where they sat, doing much of what they did, eating food, laughing, probably had a great sense of humor, sarcastic, perfect sarcasm, perfect sarcasm. Uh, his arrival was not showy. There, there were, of course, miraculous events to speak of. You think of the star, you think of all of these, you know, Herod, there's a king and he's enraged. And why? Because, well, that's what Jesus does. He threatens the kingdoms of men and all of Jerusalem's upset. We just read that. And so he's like, well, let me, let me know where he's at. I'll come worship him, which is what liars say. And we see his true colors come out. But a lots, lots of miraculous things taking place. But instead of this showy, ostentatious display, he was born in a feeding trough because the guest room of the house was occupied. Uh, he didn't go to a hotel. They weren't trying to check into a hotel. Uh, they were going to probably a family's house. Everybody was there. Remember the census? It was packed full. He's in the lower level with the animals. He was in a feeding trough, which has tremendous implications. For example, as the bread of life, he came to Bethlehem, which means house of bread. That's what the word Bethlehem means, house of bread. And where animals feasted, there lie the bread of life baby, exposed for the world to see. <clears throat> now, incredibly, Jesus pitched a tent among us. That's what he's getting at here with this language. He pitched a tent. He spoke the language, conversing with others. He dressed as a Jewish man of the first century. Um, he, again, he ate what they ate. He lived how they lived in many ways. He was simply a man of his time, though we know who he really was. But for God to dwell somewhere is for his presence to fill the place. Colossians 1.19 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. There's that word. Now the point I'd like to emphasize here is that Jesus became the tabernacle and temple right in the middle of Israel. He became the temple, the tabernacle, right in the midst of Israel. Beholding the glory of Jesus, we'll get into this more details next week, but that's an echo of the luminous cloud that rested on the tabernacle in the wilderness. Just flip to Exodus 40, 34 later, you'll see this glory cloud comes to the tabernacle and it's bright, it's luminous, it's, it's the Shekinah glory of God. His presence descends there. So the glory of God, the glory of Yahweh, we know, left the temple under the watchful eye of Ezekiel. Ezekiel speaks of the temple, uh, of God's glory leaving there, and eventually it was destroyed by Babylon. But he sees that happen, and now we get to the New Testament, and this glory has returned, and this glory has filled Jesus, who is a new temple. So God became our neighbor. Uh, the uncapturable God sat on his mother's lap. That is glory. 
Now, flip to Revelation 21, if you're not already there. And I heard a loud voice, this is verse 3, Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. The first thing to notice about this verse is that it is an echo, and frankly, it's a direct quote from a smattering of verses. <clears throat> and I'll give those to you here. Leviticus 26, 11 and 12 reads, Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not loathe you. That's good, to not be loathed by God. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. That's Leviticus 26. Or how about Ezekiel 37, 27, which says nearly the exact same thing. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. So we have Leviticus, Exodus, Consider this theme of tabernacle shows up later again in John chapter 14, verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And here's the kicker. We will come to him and make our dwelling with him. And giving instructions for the construction of the tabernacle, Ezekiel, sorry, Exodus 25, 8 says, and let them make a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. Uh, the Apostle Paul, one more, picks up on this theme in 2 Corinthians 6.16. A great verse to get your vaccine exemption. <clears throat> or what agreement has a sanctuary of God with idols? For we are a sanctuary of the living God. You are as an individual. We are as a local body. In a visible body, we are, as a global body, the sanctuary of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they, they shall be my people. All over the Pentateuch, the Old Testament, into the New, God dwells with his people. The Bible repeatedly emphasizes that God is the creator, man is the creature, and God's desire is to make his dwelling place with man. And as I mentioned already, when the Bible speaks of God dwelling with man, he speaks, the Bible, it speaks of the covenantal relationship. Remember, Adam had breached the garden sanctuary by failing to guard it, and thus sin, remember, sin is estrangement from God's presence. That's the opposite of dwelling. Instead of dwelling with God and God with man, sin fractures that, so you have estrangement. But sin entered into the world because of that. Adam failed to guard. Now, the whole rest of the Bible is a recapturing of God's presence with man. God is determined for man to experience the pleasure of God's holy presence. I'll say it again. God is determined. That's what redemptive history is all about. Not us escaping to be with him, but for him to be here with us. God is determined for man to experience the pleasure of God's holy presence. Now just think for a moment. History moves from wrath to grace, sin to grace, sin to holiness. It moves from unfaithfulness to faithfulness. Uh, it goes from a rejection of God's presence to a full-on embrace of God's presence. 
Now, here's the biblical, biblical story, just to plot this for you. First, God was present with Adam and, Adam and Eve in the garden sanctuary, and the Garden of Eden was a sanctuary. It was a temple where God went and dwelt with man. Man would go worship God, partake of the sacramental trees of God, and then go out into the world and cultivate. And then he would come back every Sabbath to rest in the presence of God. That God was there with Adam face to face. I love the, the cool of the day. God is walking in the garden. What beautiful language of God's presence with man walking with us. Second, well, hold on. <laughs> Let me get back to Adam here. After man's fall, Adam was no longer in the sanctuary of God. And remember, he could not come back. And what was there guarding? Remember the fiery sword guarded the way. So that's the first taste of God's presence with man and what happens when sin enters in. Second thing, <clears throat> fast forward, God dwells in the midst of Israel in the wilderness at the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. The, the priests were told in Numbers, they work and keep the sanctuary, just like Adam was to work and keep the garden sanctuary. They're to work and keep the sanctuary. However, the stipulations are very rigid. For unholy people to get back to God's presence, things must be done a certain way lest man dies. Sacrificial offerings are done in a very meticulous and rigid way. And to circumvent God's prescriptions for that is to utterly destroy what he has put in place. Third, as history unfolds, God dwells with man in Solomon's temple. Remember, David wants to build a house, and God says, you will not build a house, I will build your house, speaking of his kingdom, speaking of Jesus. But Solomon comes, and Solomon builds the temple. Now, at the prayer of dedication, Solomon even admits in 1 Kings 8.27 that God cannot be contained in temples made by human hands. So we're building you this house, house, but we realize that you fill the universe. So we understand that. So Solomon admits that in his prayer. He says in 1 Kings 8, verse 57, later on, May Yahweh our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not forsake us or abandon us. That's dwelling language. Now, the Apostle Paul, you remember, he's on an evangelistic tear. And when he's preaching in Athens, he admits the same thing. God is so far beyond the creation. He's entirely self-sufficient in and of himself that he cannot be shoehorned into a building constructed by mere mortals. Paul says that in Acts chapter 17. Same thing as Solomon. We, we're making things out of brick, mortar, wood, you name it. And God, we realize that you cannot be contained in this way. Because a God who can be managed is a false God. Fourth, and this is where we arrive today with Christmas. Jesus is the tabernacle and temple, and he has come to dwell in his people and make them a temple of living stones. So, that said, I'd like to unpack this paradigm a little bit more with you. How shall we then live? That is our normal question. <clears throat> Well, given this biblical theological theme of dwelling, and particularly the New Testament's use of the Old Testament language to describe it, 
The central feature of Jesus' birth is the fact that he is Emmanuel. That's part of the whole package deal. This Jesus is Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Taken literally in the Hebrew, it's with us God. Um, Emmanuel, El, it means is short for God. Elohim, El. So Emmanuel literally just means with us God. He is with us God, which is kind of a fascinating thing in and of itself. Despite man's sin, God has always been with us in a general sense, in a general covenantal sense. He was the one who clothed Adam, you remember? He clothed Adam. He is the one who instructed Noah to build a, essentially a uh, reverse baptism because they were, it was a, uh, an echo of baptism and cleansing. God instructed Noah. Remember, he called Abraham too. He said, you're, you're no longer... Uh, doing this, we're going to do something else here. He called Abraham. This is the God who chose Moses. Remember the burning bush scene? Same God who chose Moses. He is the same God who rescued Israel from Pharaoh's armies. And he is the same God who established David's kingdom. Yahweh is with his people. He is always with his people, calling them back to his loving kindness by the words of the prophets, and that's what the prophets did, right? They, would, they were lawyers bringing charges to Israel to bring them back to God. They had forsaken God. They needed him, so they need to repent and be brought back into him. This same God who has stacked up centuries of covenant faithfulness toward, uh, towards us, he showed up in a feeding trough in Bethlehem. And this is the truest, most robust meaning of God to be with us. Quite literally, God is with us as one of us. He's not just with us in a building somewhere in the Middle East. He is with us as a human, as a man. The presence of God with man was so close that it showed up in human flesh. Unconscionable to Muslims, but the core of Christianity. See, when John tells us that Jesus tabernacled among us, he makes a very bold claim, but this claim isn't without precedent. He, it's not like he just made this up. Jesus was the temple whose new creation project began the second he was resurrected. The temple in Israel was a symbol of creation. And, and I think most of us, we miss this from time to time, but the temple in Israel was a symbol of creation. It was a reflection of Eden. If you go through what's us, you know, they're not boring, but we like to think of them as boring, but the boring passages of the construction of the temple, the tabernacle, very detailed, bronze rings and curtain size this way. Um, this is a mini creation. And in fact, you have a lot of the language architecturally, it looked like the Garden of Eden. It was supposed to look like that with pomegranates and all these different things on the temple edifice itself. But as the second Adam, Jesus knows full well all of these things. Jesus was a, a genius. In Matthew 12, 6, Jesus identifies himself as the temple. Remember, he says something absolutely crazy to those listening. Something greater than the temple is here. <laughs> What's greater than the temple? A better temple. <laughs> Offensive. The Shekinah glory has transitioned from the building to the person of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus also claims to be the tabernacle temple by offering true Sabbath rest to God's people, Matthew 11. So when we read the Gospels, we have to remember, put the glasses on, he's recovering what Adam lost. What Adam lost, Jesus is bringing back to us. Uh, A great reason to give gifts, to remind us that Jesus gives us not only the gift of himself, but he gives us gifts too. He gives us what Adam lost. This so-called cleansing of the temple, remember when Jesus makes a whip and hits people, which is always an option. I'll be lying if thought didn't cross my mind at the March for Life, but what are you doing? I'm being like Jesus, okay? (laughs) But the, the cleansing of the temple in Matthew 21, it points to this out with the old, in with the new temple paradigm. Uh, Jesus healed in the temple, highly offensive, healed on the Sabbath, because that's what the Sabbath is supposed to do. It's supposed to be healing. He healed in the temple, and he moved the locus of healing from the building and its apostate priests to Jesus, the new temple, the true high priest. To make matters even more controversial, Jesus had the audacity in Luke 7 to speak about forgiving sin. Which is easier, to say, pick up your mat and walk, or to forgive sins? For it's the same for him. He can do both. You see, the brick-and-mortar temple was where forgiveness of sins came from. It was a house of prayer in Solomon's language for the nations. They were to come to the temple to meet with God, to experience forgiveness of sins, and then go live their lives on mission for Yahweh. But now Jesus is the temple, and Jesus can forgive sins wherever he goes, whenever he chooses, at any point, at any time. Amazing. G.K. Beale concludes this. This is a great quote. He says this, His death and resurrection, speaking of Jesus, is the climax of this role of temple building. He builds the new temple by fulfilling the function of the temple eschatologically. In other words, by offering his life for all as the atoning and covenant-establishing sacrifice. The old temple dies. This is where the temple identity comes into question. The old temple dies. His body is that old temple. We think of Jesus substituting himself for our sins. That is true. But he is the temple. So the old temple dies in his body. The old sacrificial system dies in his body. Proven later to be put completely and utterly annihilated in AD 70. But then a new temple arises, Beale says, his body, which becomes a corporate house of prayer for all the nations. Isn't this incredible? This salvation that we celebrate, that God would dwell in our midst. Oh, what joy for God to be with us. What does it mean? Well, for starters, it means that there is no road that Christ hasn't traversed. He's been there. There is no sea that Christ hasn't conquered. He rules there too. There are no temptations that Christ has not faced and won. He's been victorious. God with us means that Jesus is with us each and every day. Life's pilgrimages would be much, much harder were Christ not there with us. We've often reflected, in, even with my kids, we've talked about this before, going to a funeral where unbelief has plagued the place. It's hard. 
how can you go through life and death without knowing Christ? How can one resist the entanglements of sin? Well, know that Christ is with you. How can you survive the trials of life? Well, know that Christ is with you. How can you face financial trouble? Well, know that Christ is with you and that he is an infinitely more valuable treasure. Uh, What about times of suffering and depression, betrayal, hurt? Well, know that Christ Jesus is with you. What about your marriage, your family, your job? Know that Christ is with you. When we talk about the word made flesh and dwelling with man, we are talking about Jesus knowing full well our condition. Jesus knows full well our condition. Are you alone? Jesus has been there. Have you been betrayed? Jesus has been there too. Were you once a child or are you a child right now? Jesus has been there too. Um, Have you ever felt the deep blow of death in losing a loved one? Jesus has. Shortest verse in the Bible, John 11, 35. What is it? Jesus wept. Has your soul ever been sorrowful even unto death? Jesus has been there too. You may confess that God is with us, but do you live like it? Ask yourself if you know in the depths of your being what it means for God to be with you. If God is... If God in Christ is truly with you, dwelling in you by the presence of his Holy Spirit, we have to ask ourselves, what would change? Would you worry less? Jesus says not to worry, and what do we think? That's ah, fine. I can worry. Would you cast your cares upon him with more fervency of prayer if Christ dwelt in you? Would you hesitate to prefer yourself over the worship of God on the Lord's day or any day, would you be less selfish? Um, what exactly would change? Uh, would you be more patient? Would you be more humble? Would you be more self-giving? What, would you be more prone to words of encouragement and less prone to complaining? Uh, we're just talking about all the sins here. Would you be more committed to his kingdom and the establishment of righteousness and justice in the world through the proactive preaching of the gospel. What would change if Christ is really with you? If Christ is in you, mediated by the Holy Spirit, what would change? You see, that Christ would dwell in our midst demonstrates the great care God has for his creation. The Bible says God never abandons the works works of his hands. He never does. And when the world wants to collapse under the cult of climate change, what do we do? Well, we tell the story of God's good creation, which is upheld by the power of Christ's word. When the world questions whether or not love can be truly known, we tell the story of Jesus Christ who took on flesh and dwelt among us. Even further, this God-man atoned for our sins by dying in our place, triumphantly rising from the dead in order to draw us back to the Father, to equip us with the maturity of wisdom and discerning between good and evil, to be the kings that Adam was supposed, was supposed to be. When the world would have us locked indoors, 
to ostensibly save lives. What do we do? <clears throat> we step foot into the world to declare the authority of Jesus Christ who dwells among his people. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. 1 John 3.1 When the world clamors for power in order to advance its apostasy, we tell the story of the self-giving God who became flesh and dwelt among us. When the world would put up a throne to Satan, God bless the man who tore it down. Evangelicals, oh, they would have excoriated Gideon. That's living as though God dwells among us. The one who became a slave of all, the one who knows our frame and does not despise us, the one who will be our God and we his people. This God is the self-giving God, the one who knows us by name, calls us, and we can hear his voice, and he loves us dearly. Doxology, the praise of God, is the only response to such a wonderful prospect. God dwells with men. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel has come to ransom captive sinners from every corner of the earth. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word you have given us, and we praise you for the truth that you have dwelt among us and that you dwell in us today. We are grateful that you sent your Holy Spirit to enliven us, to resurrect us, to give us guidance each and every day. I pray that you would strengthen us in this truth so that we might live faithfully unto you. Through Christ we pray. Amen.